What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And And you're you're listening listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello, you are listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Yes, this is our Timothy Dalton special, part one of two but yeah, Timothy Dalton, the fourth actor to play James Bond. And so we've done Brosnan, we've done Daniel Craig. Now it's T- Timothy Dalton. So we're sort of halfway through with the actors. So exciting. Timothy Dalton made two James Bond films, 1987's The Living Daylight and 1989's License to Kill. We'll be discussing those films at length uh, in their own episodes down the line. But... Before we get there, what do you guys think of Timothy Dalton's James Bond films in a, in a, in a general ser- sense? I think he, I, I really liked it, uh, Dalton, but um, I just think he didn't get the opportunity to do what he wanted to do at the right time. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Brandon? I think similar to Pierce Brosnan in, the, in that he was dealt a poor hand with the writing, the direction and, and s- some of the um, people around him. It's interesting. Um, he holds uh, an interesting place, I think, in the minds of James Bond fans. I think for a while he was sort of the forgotten Bond. If you were watching it on TV, it was always Roger Moore or Sean Connery. And then in the cinema, it's Piers Brosnan. It kind of felt like Dalton was slightly forgotten, but, uh, he's definitely had a resurgence, renaissance with the fans. Timmy mm. D. He's know, become a bit the of a laser bee, hasn't he now? Yeah, he's had, um, yeah, I think he's been critically reappraised. I think you're right. I think his films are ahead of their time uh, or maybe out of time. But yeah, I put out a question on uh, on our Twitter to sort of get a general sense of what people thought of the films um, and in terms of like which, which film they prefer from the votes that we got. Licence to Kill edges out Living Daylights very slightly. Mm. Um, yeah. And then just sort of general feedback that we had 
Chris on Twitter said the closest we've had to the Ian Fleming character in nearly 60 years, a perfect bond for an imperfect world. Um, uh, someone else said, uh, the, the, the rock and roll guy said he was a great 007. The Living Daylights is a solid spy caper with lots of good action sequences and license to kill suffers from a jarring tonal shift caused by contemporary film peer pressure. I think, yeah, I think mm. License to Kill does have a slight tonal shift from the other Bond films. Um, yeah. Much more gritty, more down to earth. Um, and I think that's all, it's all the better for it. Nikolai on Twitter, he said License to Kill has been his number one Bond film for a long while now. Uh, so that's Wowzers. interesting. Yeah. And Living Daylights is also in my top five. But yeah, we had loads of messages from people. I won't go through them all now. I might save some for when we get to the films as well. But he's got a lot of fans out there. So I'm excited mm-hmm. to sort of delve into um, what we've learned about Timothy Dalton. Tim Dalton. He was born Timothy Leonard Dalton Leggett. Uh, and he was born in Colwyn Bay in 1946, which is in Wales, of course. We've done some of the other podcasts on the Bond actors, and I think safe to say that most probably didn't have a sort of, you know, great upbringing. They were either, you know, working class or in, in um, Connery's case, probably even slightly tougher than that. Um, I think Timothy's probably the opposite of that. He, he's, he was pretty well off. He, he started off, um, his, he had an American mother and an English father. Uh, he was a soldier and also a, really successful advertising agent as well so probably didn't have to worry too much about money when he was younger uh, which probably gave him the opportunity to kind of focus more on the things he wanted to do as opposed to just surviving as we probably saw with Connery and and, and all the decisions he had to make in a, in his younger life the family moved from Wales when uh, Dalton was four to Belper in Derbyshire um, and he went to a grammar school there Herbert Strutt Grammar School I read a, a biography. It's actually quite hard to find stuff out about um, Dalton's early life because he doesn't have like a biography or anything. But um, one thing I read was that he thrived at sports sciences, which mm. I thought was interesting. It's the only reference I can find to him having any sort of sporting interests. But then, yeah, as a teenager, he went on to uh, training at the Air Training Corps, LXX uh, Squadron, which is apparently Croft and Coolcheth around uh, that area. And after that, that's when things really kicked kicked up a notch with his career. I think it's pretty obvious to say that Dalton is a thesp. He's a he's an actor through and through, and that's that runs through his whole career. Um, and that kind of started at quite a young age. So um, when he was in his school, he apparently went to quite a lot of stage and theatre productions. Um, and one of them was Macbeth, uh, which was meant to be the inspiration for him to decide to to start his career in 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 stage. And then he started just taking part in 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 plays at school. Uh, so he did he did stuff like um, he was in a Arms and and the Man, a George Bernard Shaw play, and he did something in Billy Liar as well. Um, but it wasn't until so those were kind of school based uh, drama things. And then he began his professional dramatic career on tour with the National Youth Theatre. And then he in nineteen sixty four he won a role with um, the company Shakespearean production of Coriolanus at uh, the London Queen's. Theatre, and that's when things kicked off, and he really got stuck into the acting. Yeah, you've sort of uh, dived into a little bit of my territory there for for what I was going to talk about. But, I um... thought I would do, but um, 
but that I can add some... Please feel free to go into more depth because that's all I know about him. I did no extra reading on the, the acting side of things. You're right. His details about his life are scarce online. And he, there's an interview with Timothy Dalton and he says that his Wikipedia biography is totally ridiculous and utter drivel. Um, and I think he likes to keep a bit of mystery about himself. And so you're right. His, it, there is a bit of, of grey areas in terms of his, of his history. But uh, one thing he, d- he did talk about... Uh, in an interview was you, you said he was a, like a, a training with the RAF. Um, he did actually learn to fly uh, with a ba- mm. uh, ex battle of Britain Spitfire pilot. And ah. it was all part of some training thing that he was a part of. Um, I don't think he was that keen on joining the RAF um, as he was really into um, his acting by this point. And acting actually is in his blood. His Both his grandfathers were in the vaudeville theatre um, and Timothy's grandmother was a music hall star and uh, according to some reports worked alongside Charlie Chaplin so um, you can see like you're right it was in his blood that he was going to go into the performing arts um yeah he saw that production of Macbeth um and he joined the National Youth Theatre at National Youth Theatre in 1964 and then yeah made his debut uh on the stage in Coriolanus at London's Queen Theatre he said, it was the first step. I was in London face to face with Shakespeare, so to speak, in my first professional setting at a West End theatre. He enjoyed that experience so much that he, instead of going to university, he applied for RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. But surprisingly, he hated it there. He did two years and said he learned nothing. He said, you start off with your eyes wide open and you think it's brilliant. Then they try to flatten you, to rebuild you, which is utter rubbish. And I think a lot of his dissatisfaction comes with the way that they sort of try and churn out actors of a similar type and being Welsh and sort of Northern. I think he didn't like the way that they sort of tried to get rid of his accent and they tried to sort of get him talking like a Shakespearean actor and all that sort of stuff. He said, Rada didn't break me, but it did shatter my confidence for a bit. Um, That's quite similar. Didn't Craig, uh, when he was um, training, he said a similar thing about his kind of learning to act and it, it didn't help him. He wasn't very complimentary about his his days. Was it rather that Craig went to Guildhall? Guildhall. Ah, yeah, yeah. So he was talking about he was talking about that and saying it didn't really. It's a very similar thing actually. Saying it wasn't really that beneficial to his his career. Yeah, well, it's like this and um, Sean Connery as well being self taught, like finding that maybe the education wasn't the best route mm. for him, but teaching himself. But he said it took a year to undo the psychological damage done by the oppressive teachers at RADA, which is not what you expect from like, you know, nah. um, somewhere like that. So yeah, he left drama school without finishing the course and then he joined the Birmingham Rep. Just a, an anecdote, uh, apparently on the way to his audition for the Birmingham Rep, he crashed his bike and smashed his leg and needed treatment in hospital, but he made it to the audition eight hours late and landed the job. Yeah, he was under someone called Peter Jews, who, a little link for you, he was the director of the TV series An Age of Kings, one of Connery's early roles. So Connery and Dalton linked there at that point. So yeah, he, um, from the Birmingham season, he then transferred to Vaudeville in As You Like It, and then into television, which we'll speak about. But yeah, in his time at Birmingham Rep, he did tons of plays. I won't list them all here, but... um, there is uh, there is a uh, there is one book on Timothy Dalton which has all his performances, um, which you can read on um, Kindle. Which uh, you, if you want this information, you can you can find it there. But I think it was the uh, his appearance in London's West End in As You Like It that really sort of was his peak of of this period, um, and then he moved on to try other forms of acting. Yeah, so he, he tried some TV work in the late sixties. So 
His first one was something called Saturday Wild Sunday, set in the north. This was 1967, and it's um, the episodes were on Saturday and Sunday evenings. That's why it was called that. And throughout October and November 1967, it was just about young people's lives. And he he doesn't really remember much about it, so he, he says, It was for British television, and it was my first TV. I don't remember the character being called Peter. I don't even remember who or what he was or what he did, but I remember being in it. And Malcolm McDowell was also in it. And it was his first television. Um, you had poetry, you had a bit of music, you had this, that and the other. But I can't really remember much about it. The only thing of note about it was it was Mal- Malcolm McDowell's first TV as well as my own. So Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds like, was it like Biker Grove? I think he's dismissed it. <laughs> um, and then 1969, he did an episode of Judge D, which was a black and white series of um set in tang dynasty china that dealt with different criminal cases uh, and then it, it goes on to be solved by judge d and dalton was in an episode called a place of great evil so yeah that's his his breakthrough into into television i'm probably not going to search out those no series no i mean he's he's forgotten one completely. So. Yeah, it's not. It's not a good advert for I'll skip those. <laughs> so then he started to things started to happen a bit more, and he started getting involved in films, quite big films actually, very quickly. The first film that he was involved with was a film that has. I found it. I know it's a very early film of his, but people have mentioned it in his casting since then. The Lion in the Winter, which is a 1968 historical drama. They're largely historical dramas. I'll, I'll, I'll put that down now. Most of the things that Dalton has done are historical dramas. And it's set in around 1183 at Christmas. Um, it's all about Henry II. And it's the, I actually try to get my head around the plot and it's quite confusing. It's um, Peter O'Toole is that one. It's got it's got loads of big stars. It's got Peter O'Toole in, but probably the biggest person who was in it was Catherine Hepburn, who, who, who at the time was obviously she she was you know one of the biggest stars of the um, like forties and fifties, and this was her uh, later age, starring as the main character Eleanor of Aquitaine, and Anthony Hopkins is in it. And you should actually watch a clip of this because just seeing Anthony Hopkins at that young age, he was massive. He was like a really big built guy. Uh, he plays quite an imposing character in it. And then uh, Timothy Dalton plays a character called Philip II. But the idea, the whole story is around um, Peter O'Toole has two sons and he's got an estranged wife who's played by Catherine Hackburn, who's the queen. Um, and I think he is, has got a mistress um, and somebody else, or his wife is trying to get the mistress to marry his son. But then it's all intertwined with this weird historical Storyline, but it, it actually, if you look at the the, the trailer, it's pretty impressive production values for that time. It's um, quite a big deal. So you can imagine for Dalton at this early age getting involved in this big film, pretty big deal for him, and he's he's hitting the big time pretty, pretty quick. Interestingly, music by it was by John Barry, um, which is an interesting link. Um, it's very good music as well. I'd listened to some of that, and it was a massive commercial success. Uh, success won three um, Academy Awards, including. Uh, uh, Hepburn who won Best Actress um, and she, which made her a three-time winner in that category which is phenomenal the only female actor to do it I think maybe maybe research I found said at the time but maybe that is still still the case uh, yeah absolutely. you research that while I go on to the next film <laughs> so um, the next film I haven't got a lot of information actually it's almost impossible to find any info about this film 
there's no clips on it. There's no detailed kind of plot lines to it, but it's called The Voyeur, uh, and it's from 1970. Are you, are you laughing at my pronunciation there? <laughs> it's a good, <laughs> it's a good my guy. Voyeur. And it's called, in Italy, it's an Italian film, it's called Giochi uh, Particolari, and it's also known in Russia as The Pervert. And in it, it's about this character called Sandro. He's married to, uh, who's married to a, a chap called Claude. Sandro has a strange obsession that he is a self-confessed voyeur. And he films his wife in all walks of life with a little camcorder that he's got. And then Dalton comes in playing the character Mark. And then I think there's some sort of love triangle. He starts filming them. It's all I could get from the clips that I could find on this very strange looking film. So yeah, there is two big entries into the world of movies. Catherine Hepburn has won four Best Actress Oscars. She's the only... De- deservedly so. Yeah, One she's of the best actresses who's ever lived. I could have gone off on a tangent and done a big thing about Catherine Hepburn, but I'll save that for another episode. She's the only actor to have won uh, in, in the top category four times. So, um, yeah. Phenomenal. There you have it. So then Dalton does some more BBC TV work. Uh, again, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because there's nothing too exciting here to talk about. Three Princes in 1968 starred with Roy Kinnear, father of Rory Kinnear. So another Bond link there for us. Uh, Three Princes and it was a skit based on one of the stories for 1001 Nights and Dalton plays Ahmed. So yeah, not colour blind casting there of the, uh, of the, of the wrong sort. In 1970, he starred in uh, BBC Player of the Month, Five Finger Exercise. Uh, this is based on the play by Peter Schaffer. And it follows a few days in the lives of the Harringtons who are at war. And he, I think he plays Clive Harrington. Uh, and he said he was attracted to the role because it was difficult. So um, then finally, uh, for the BBC, he did uh, another TV play of the month called Candida. And that was based on the George Bernard Shaw play of the same names, of the same name. And Dalton played March Banks, who was a confused and heart-torn poet. The stage, uh, they said that Dalton played the part with considerable technical skill and understanding. And I think that's sort of a common theme when we read about Timothy Dalton is that he is a very technically proficient actor in terms he puts of his, the effort in. Yeah, his trade craft. Nineteen sixty-eight, and the producers are looking for a new Bond because Connery's left the role. And Dalton was actually Im- invited to a casting call. Loads of actors were. It was like <laughs> this is a big deal. They just lost their main man, and uh, so they actually offered him the role. But he, at the time, would have been mid twenties and considered himself too young. And he went on to say at a later date, eventually when he did get the role in 87, he said, originally I did not want to take over from Sean Connery. He was far too good. He was wonderful. I was about 24 or 25, which is too young. But when you've seen Bond from the beginning, you don't take over from Sean Connery. I think this is a huge missed opportunity personally. Judging by the style of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, it really needed someone with a bit of acting clout. And there is an alternative timeline, isn't there, that he takes that role and has it for 15, 20 years, you know, and really makes the role his own more so than Connery would. If only we had a what if machine. Uh, tonally, it's very similar, isn't it, On Her Majesty's Secret mm. Service to, to Dalton Zero when you think yeah. about it. Um, exactly. And then to have... I, I think I think he, he made... This is a 
consistent theme throughout Dalton's career. I don't think he ever makes a decision for the money, which is goes against what you expect from from a lot of the bonds that we've we've looked at. He he, he for what he wanted to do at that time, I think he would probably he made the right decisions for it because you wouldn't want to go after Connery, would you? That would be absolutely ridiculous, especially at his age. You wouldn't have the confidence. You wouldn't know how to do it. And he's, mm. if you look at what he's been doing, he's he's doing some pretty good stuff. He doesn't want yeah. to risk risk that by doing something that Sean Connery's just left. So I think I think he made the right decision. But yeah, it would be interesting to see how what he did done with that. So then, yes, we go back to more historical dramas. Um, Cromwell. A 1970 uh, film. Uh, it was actually written and directed by Ken Hughes uh, about the life of Oliver Cromwell in the 1650s, if you didn't know when Oliver Cromwell was around. Um, another major hitter had Richard Harris in it, Alec Guinness, Charles Gray was in it as well. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just a kind of historical drama about um, the life and times of Oliver Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell at, at that point. It didn't do very well. It received uh, quite unfavorable reception, largely around criticism of the historical inaccuracies, which is a running theme with a lot of these historical dramas that, that Dalton's done. But I think at the time, historical inaccuracies were often criticized more than they are now. It's kind of expected now that it's always historically inaccurate. So it did seem quite a common theme across a lot of the kind of critical response he got from it. Um, but there was a lot of praise for the acting in the film and there were a lot of awards that cropped up from it or nominations for awards. Um, best costume design at the Academy Awards, best original score it was nominated for. Most of them around kind of costume design and scores. But it was nominated for a Golden Prize as Best Picture at the Moscow International Film Festival. After that, he went on to do Wuthering Heights in 1970, which is, of course, based on the 1847 Bronte novel. It's just a direct kind of retelling of the Wuthering Heights story. But they change it quite a bit to dramatise it and make it a little bit more interesting for cinema audiences. Washington Post said it was inane and incoherent and such a tenuous, sickly resemblance to the book it's based on. Um, that in simple justice, the producers should be restrained from restrained from using the original title, uh, which I thought was quite a nice overview. I always like reading the the, the very eloquently written bad reviews. I think there's <laughs> something something really nice about a well written bad review. If it's a poorly written one, you just go, well, they're just not very nice. But when it's well written, it's um, it's impressive. They also said uh, some of the film characters have the same names as Bronte characters, but the resemblance ceases right about there. Her story, her atmosphere, and her emotions are almost totally ignored, bungled, or butchered. So is, yeah, is Dalton Heathcliff in that one then? Yeah, yes, he plays the main character that oh. Heathcliff. I actually watched a few clips of this as well. It seems quite good in it. Seems what you'd expect from Dalton. It's it's full on thesp in um, in Heathcliff. A lot of shouting, a lot of crying. And then Mary, Queen of Scots, 1971, a uh, biographical film this time. And this was led uh, by Vanessa Redgrave as the main character, which we'll come talk about in a little bit. One interesting thing I found is that it also had Judy Cornwell in it, who you probably won't know, but she played Daisy in Keeping Up Appearances. First time I've seen her in a, an old <laughs> <laughs> historical biographic film, but she just popped up in the touch train. I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's will bring that one up. Um, again, got a lot of criticism for the fact that it was um, took a lot of liberties with the historical actresses for, for dramatic uh, effect apparently the two queens that are in it uh, never actually met in real life but they have a lot of discourse and within the film and yeah but it did uh, receive at the 44th Academy Awards did receive five nominations including Best Actress for Redgrave so did pretty well 
And you can imagine, I mean, all these films that keep cropping up, Dalton's getting involved in some pretty major league stuff. And historical films now are a bit niche. But in those days, a lot of films are historical dramas. They were, I mean, it was barely even historical back then because it wasn't as long ago as it is now. So, yeah. I mean, Mary Queen of Scots was like hundreds of years ago, right? (laughs) Yeah, maybe Mary Queen Queen of Scots might have been a bit longer. (laughs) And then, yeah, the UK premiere was... uh, was the uh, the Odeon Leicester Square and it had the Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth and the Queen Mother went to it pretty big deal and then just some more criticism because I like reading reviews where they're criticising it uh, New York Times said uh, a loveless passionless costume drama which I thought was quite nice uh, unfortunately there is no excitement whatsoever in what Charles Jorrot the director and John Hale the author of the original screenplay have put together Mary Queen of Scots intends I assume to illuminate history yet all it's really doing is touching base is like a dull dutiful student but Roger Ebert actually quite liked it he gave it three stars and uh, said it was so it was pretty good so mixed reviews but a big big film for Mr Dalton yeah and um, this is only a very minor um, chapter in, in Dalton's life this next part but in 1972 he was contracted to play William Lamb in the film adaptation of Lady Caroline Lamb and just before they're about to start shooting he was dropped from the film and replaced by an actor called John Finch at the very last minute and this caused a quite a furore for Dalton and he ended up suing the production company for breach of contract and he won. And actually I've read a few times where Dalton's been litigious over various bits and bobs. So um yeah, this is sort of one of the first cases of that. So he was replaced by an actor called John Finch. Um Fun fact about John Finch, he was approached by the producers of the James Bond film to, p- to play Bond in Live and Let Die. Uh, that is a fun fact. But he turned yeah. it down because he didn't want to make a film like that. He wanted to make films like this, Lady Caroline mm. Lamb. So it was around about the same time, actually. And yeah, I won't go into too much detail about the plot of this because he didn't make it in the end. But it was directed by um, Oscar-winning English playwright and screenwriter Robert Bolt. And it was his one and only directing credit. He was the screenwriter of Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago and A Man for All Seasons. So big. this would have been a big picture for, for Dalton, but um, no wonder he was um, upset that he'd been dropped at the last minute for that film. Yeah, I would imagine that probably had a part to play in his next career move in treading the boards again. He went back to theatre in the early 1970s to try and sort of own his skills again and um, double down on his craft. So he really is passionate about what he does and that, that comes across in how he's dealt with his career throughout um so he went back and he joined the royal shakespeare company and the prospect theater company and he he did tours with them around the world he did lead in romeo and juliet king lear henry v love's labors lost and henry the fourth so constantly that is a uh, he's pretty full on for this five years you know there's no there's not really any gaps to do anything else and then when he does he comes back the film just before you jump into that i think um just something i read that apparently his, his henry v is like considered one of the best henry v's ever from that period 1974 yeah and i think it's that's when a lot often when you read about him it's like old oh, shakespearean actor timothy dalton and i think it's probably from this period here you know mm. a real intense sort of period of studying and performing Shakespeare that really made his name as that sort of Shakespearean actor. He loves a bit of the bard, doesn't he? <laughs> he's very much, during this period, he's he's very much the poster boy. So he, he's the lead role and the he's like the, how they're selling it as well. So, yeah. Well, 
things changed quite a bit after that because he starred in a film called Sextet, which is frankly one of the most ridiculous films I've ever seen. It's, um, I haven't seen it. I've watched trailers of it. I'm not going to watch it. It's a 1978 uh, American musical comedy film. And the, the cast list is ridiculous. It's got, uh, uh, do, do you know who Mae West is? Hmm. Big, um, big star of yesteryear, black and white film star. She's really famous for, she was quite lewd. She's, she was quite, um, sexual as a character. So in those, in those days, she really stood out. So this film is her, she's a lot older in it. I think she's like 70 something in it. And it's got, Mae West in it and it's more of a it's kind of an autobiographical comedy film uh, Dom DeLuise Tony Curtis Ringo Starr Keith Moon <laughs> George Hamilton Alice Cooper and Walter Pidgeon wow um, so big big list uh, directed by Ken Hughes and it's kind of like a music a weird musical thing where uh, Mae West plays herself as almost like she's still a young starlet like she's 25 30 and she's like bedding all these men all the time, but she's like 70 something. And Timothy Dalton plays her husband or husband to be like a fiance. But throughout the film, people like Ringo Starr play her ex-husbands and she's sleeping with all of those, I think, in the film. So she's basically just pulling all these people. And then there's a, I think the United Nations or whatever the equivalent was at that point in the US was, they get her in to sleep with all the different United Nations people so that they can like make decisions she's like their spy but she just sleeps with them but she's 70 something so ridiculous film it was a major box office bomb it grossed fifty thousand dollars um against a budget of four to eight million so big big losses on that film um apparently uh may west who was like instrumental in making this film it was largely about her um she was looking for somebody like Cary grant at the time she's seen him in a film called she'd done him wrong and wanted him um but uh, she couldn't get him so she auditioned 150 unknown stars to be in the film and over a thousand men auditioned for this film and then Dalton was cast uh, after West saw him in Wuthering Heights interestingly um, so he's going back to his older older roles she wanted a smouldering gentleman English gentleman so she went back to that uh, and 18 of the other people that were in it were also cast as kind of secondary roles in the film uh, Dalton said um, the script is very funny it really is a celebration of Mae West, and he, but he had mixed feelings about it. So he said, I admired her nerve, talking about Mae West, and enjoyed working with her. I was even interviewed by Rona Barrett in the picture. And then he talks about, talks about the interview. He says, I was, it was a real stretch for me. And frankly, after making love to a woman in her mid-80s, oh, there you go, mid-80s, <laughs> I knew I could handle any assignment. It was, it was massively panned at, at the, the kind of reviews variety said it was a cruel unnecessarily mostly unfunny musical comedy new york times said um just said embarrassing <laughs> so yeah interesting move but that was probably his first big mainstream attempt at cinema everything else until then had been very period very kind of desp but this was he was still playing sort of the same character but in a much more mainstream film but probably not a good option for him he started in a series called Centennial, Centennial, which is a 12-episode American miniseries, which is about the history of the Centennials in Colorado from 1795 to, to the 1970s. So it's a really long series. It's a, like the, the story it spans is enormous. Um, and it was massively... It was a really big deal. It had a budget of $25 million for the series at the time, which is massive at that at that period of time and um, it had four directors five cinematographers and had over 100 speaking parts across across the series it's also the longest and most ambitious television 
television project that was ever attempted at the time. So again, another big deal for um, Tim Dalton that you probably nobody ever knows about. 21 hours and 26 hours with commercials in total, which is enormous for a series at that time. Maybe like a comedy series might have done it, but not, not something that's a proper historical series. Timothy Dalton played a character called Oliver Seacombe and it also had Barbara Carrera in it, who played a character called Clay Basket. Uh, and it was nominated for lots of awards, including a Golden Globe uh, for his acting in it, I think, and then Best Television Series at the Golden Globe uh, Drama in 1979. So, the, yeah, so he, um, it's here that he starts sort of branching out into US TV and his, probably his most uh, interesting role so far is in 1979, he appeared in an episode of Series 4 of Charlie's Angels, episode called Fallen Angel, and he played a cat burglar called Damien Ice Cat Roth. And when Charlie... Do you remember Charlie's Angels? Do you remember how it worked? It was like the guy on the little speaker, and he was Charlie, and he would introduce like the case to the angels and blah, blah, blah. So this is Charlie introducing Damien Roth to the angels. It says, Mr. Roth is a man with James Bondian tastes, means and charm, also known to be an extraordinary jewel thief. He actually socialises with the very people he steals from. So it, very interesting. He's being compared to James Bond in this episode. And it, basically Roth, um, his, he, he's, he's a sort of renaissance man of, him, of his own. He's, he's got his own money. He's an heir, he's the heir to a fortune, but he spends his time passing his time robbing, um, stealing jewels from people. And he's got a taste for diamonds. Um, and they, Charlie's Angels are hired to protect a, an opera diva called Carla Leone, um, because she's got this blue heron diamond that Roth wants to steal. Uh, it was an interesting episode because it was one that starred Farrah Fawcett after she'd, she'd left the series after the one, one series and, and she came back for various episodes. And so she's in this one as is Dalton. Uh, talking about, talking about the role, Dalton said it was a rather nice job in terms of the piece. I was a robber, a sort of debonair, sophisticated, charming thing at which David Niven or Cary Grant was so good. It was great fun to do and I liked Farrah Fawcett very much. She was very fresh and didn't have any illusions about her fame. She knew it was all due to Charlie's Angels and she was very happy and grateful that was the case. It's quite an interesting episode. He looks absolutely amazing. <laughs> he is so charming and handsome and like i think he's like six foot two he's got this dark hair and he just looks like james bond like there's no two ways about it um the episode itself you know it's it's okay entertainment weekly said that the mysteries are still flimsy the dialogue's stiff but it's worth wading through to get to force its appearance as a lovesick accomplice to timothy dalton's jewel thief just to see her face off against two time to blow seven in a rooftop kung fu fight and then after that, um, he starred in a TV movie called The Flame is Love. And this is based on a Barbara Cartland novel. And I'm not going to tell you any more about this because it looks absolute dreck. But he plays a <laughs> French nobleman and it's about a woman who falls in love with a journalist on the way to meeting her betrothed husband. And that's Dalton. And then it descends into some satanic ritual thing. It looks very soapy. Uh, I can't imagine it's going to be high on his um, CV uh, at all. But he does have something very big coming up on his CV. It's time for Flash Gordon. I'm sure this is what everybody's been waiting for. Do it right, go on. I'm not doing it right, that's it. <laughs> Cut. If you don't do it right, people are going to be turning off. So I've got, I've got Flash. Oh. 
<laughs> well, they're, well, they're definitely turned off now. <laughs> so, yes, in 1980, he stars as Prince Baron, is that how you pronounce it? Baron? In um, Flash Gordon, Baron is a prince of a region called Arborea. And he is heir to the throne, but Ming the Merciless steals the throne. Um, and chaos uh, descends. Now, I've not actually seen Flash Gordon. Ridiculous. Which, yeah, I Sort know. your life out, mate. <laughs> um, so I didn't know th- what the story was. Well, uh, I've seen it about 10 times. I don't know what the still story is. Yeah, and this is the thing. I was reading it going, what? No. I think we could do a whole episode on the making of this on its own. We're not doing it's, that. No, <laughs> we're not doing we're, that. We're not, but it is crazy. <laughs> yeah. The, the people that were in line to direct and, and were interested in making it. George Lucas wanted to, to make this, and them turning him down led to him doing Star Wars. I mean, it's quite the story, but that's not why we're here. We're here because he he plays a... It's a Robin Hood-type character. He looks like Robin Hood uh, in his outfit. And the scenes that are watched, um, especially a bit where he fights uh, Flash on the disc with spikes in, with Brian Blessed barking from the sidelines, he's fantastic. He's the one I was rooting for. You know, I, I'm not surprised... I don't know if I was meant to, but he's the one he looks... Great. Um, a very Errol Flynn-esque, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very impressive. And so starring alongside, well, just in, in the film as well, we've got some uh, Bond alumni. So we've got Max von Sydow, who was in Never Say Never Again. John Hollis, who was in Casino Royale 1967 as an uncredited priest. And also played the role of Blofeld in the opening pre-titles of and he was Lobot in uh, Empire Strikes Back I was wondering where we were going to get to Lobot in this episode (laughs) Um, and then we've got uh, Topple from For Your Eyes Only he's in it as well Uh, Robbie Coltrane from Goldeneye and The World Is Not Enough so there's a few few crossovers there but yeah so I mean I'm going to have to watch this at some point aren't I I've got it watch it tonight come round <laughs> but so he he says about the um his his performance in this he says the costumes are knockout i was lucky i didn't have any plastic wings to flap around in nor lizard scales i got the robin hood outfit anyway to describe the story is silly it's comic cartoon time in fact when dino dolorentis that's the director first offered it to me i said dino i can't say if i'll do this or not let me see a script he went over to the sideboard and got out the Alex Raymond comic books. Look, he said, look a here, this you, fantastic. And of course, it is fantastic. Saturday morning picture stuff. And I grew up on those. So did Mike Hodges, the director. It's a wonderful thrill to be part of something that is so strong in your childhood consciousness. So it sounds like he had an absolute blast doing this and he appreciated it for what it was. So he's not taking himself seriously at all here. This is really sort of nice role for him to do. Nice fun role. Um, he's changing, isn't he? His, his, his mood towards these sort of big budget things is mm-hmm. shifting a bit, and he's he's a bit happier to take them on. Yeah, and he he's the clips I watched. He's great. So yeah, it was a, a well well chosen piece. Screenplay by Lorenzo Semple Jr., who we talked about in the Casino Royale sixty seven episode as well. So mm-hmm. of course, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so as official <laughs> James Bond A to Z historical drama person. Uh, Dalton then went on to uh, star in Jane Eyre in 1983 
uh, t- uh, television series, obviously an adaptation uh, adaptation of uh, Bronte's novel from 1847, and it was a BBC one, so quite a big deal. And acting stakes, I imagine in uh, acting world, doing a BBC series like that probably beats quite a lot of movies because um, of the sort of credibility you get from doing that. Uh, he played Edward Rochester, and it was broadcast um, across 11 episodes, so quite a big big thing for him. I'm not going to go into too much detail about Jane Eyre. Um, he also did loads and loads of miniseries, um, but before he did the miniseries, he was approached again for doing um, Bond. As you remember from various conversations we've had earlier on in the podcast, um, when it came to For Your Eyes Only, it was Roger Moore was saying that he was going to leave. He was There's a lot of talks around him uh, giving up the role. Originally, originally, his contract had been for three films, uh, which he'd done with previous three, obviously, up until... By Love Me, and his following films from that were negotiated on a film by film basis. Apparently, so he wasn't locked into a contract, and at any point, I mean, we know we know from Roger that he he was a bit of a negotiator. He always liked to have one up and you know have hold the cards, but he was showing reluctance to return for Octopussy. So the producers started looking for a new Bond, and and Timothy Dalton was one of them, alongside Michael Billington. Um, Oliver, T- yeah, Oliver Tobias. We should get a cheer in for Billington every time it's mentioned in the podcast. Oliver Tobias, James Brolin, there were loads more. Big list of them, all screen tested for it. And when Dalton talks about it, he says um, he went. Uh, uh, he said I went to see Cubby Broccoli in Los Angeles. At that time, they didn't have a script finished. I was never quite clear at the time if Roger was giving up. Well, he wasn't giving up because obviously he continued to do a few, quite a few more Bond films after that. And apparently one of the main reasons, although I assume that Roger was never wholeheartedly planning on leaving, he wanted to negotiate it, but um, Never Say Never Again at the time obviously was coming out and the producers persuaded Roger to come back because they were scared that with a new actor, they wouldn't be able to compete with Sean Connery um, because they came out at the same the same time. So not there doesn't seem to be a lot of information around that discussion around uh, Dalton becoming the next Bond. It sounds like it's quite a short, sharp kind of meeting. But yeah, there was some discussions around that time that he might take over at that point, which would have been very interesting. Although I don't think Octopussy would have been a good starting film for him. Or anyone. <laughs> or anyone, yeah. <laughs> uh, so just to quickly mention, uh, someone that's always comes up uh, when you talk about Timothy Dalton, that's Vanessa Redgrave, because as we talked about just briefly, he they start together in Mary, Mary, Queen of Scots, and actually that was the start of a 15-year romantic relationship between the two of them. They, they never really talk much about each other, but um, he in one interview he says, I've never talked about my relationship with Vanessa before. We've known each other for a long time. We worked on a movie called Mary, Queen of Scots and became friends. And he talks about being meeting her family and sort of how, how sort of down-to-earth she was. There is a book that came out called The House of Redgrave by Tim Adler. And this is a book in which the Redgraves took legal action against. And according to the book, The House of Redgrave, this is a quote from the book. He was a severe critic of her work, talking about Vanessa Redgrave. But she knew that if he ever paid her a compliment, it really meant something. And one of their first arguments was a five to six hour marathon on what Hamlet's to be or not to be speech might mean. Which is just the most thespian argument you can imagine mm. between those that two. That always crops up in my flat. Yeah. <laughs> Constant. 
And apparently, again, according to the book, Dalton provoked and challenged her and she responded to that. They would fight and break up and get back together again for most of the 1970s and 1980s. And they appeared in a number of different things together. Uh, Dalton played Petruchio opposite Vanessa Redgrave's Kate in a landmark production of Taming of the Shrew on London's West End. And this apparently is the role that impressed Cubby Broccoli um, at the time. So that was the one that really, obviously they've seen Timothy Dalton a few times at this point, but this was on the really, you know, convinced Cubby that he was, a, he was the right guy uh, to play Bond. They broke up, like I said, in 1986. And the rumours are they broke up because she refused to spend a Sunday afternoon with him. Uh, because she was going to be busy standing on a picket line. And I don't know if you know much about Vanessa Redgate, but she's a firebrand socialist. She is a red through and through. So, um, yeah, they obviously didn't see eye to eye on that, on that front. Um, so in the mid to late eighties and early nineties, he dabbled in a few documentaries, uh, wildlife documentaries. Uh, the first one was in an episode of uh, a TV show called Hooks on Fishing was uh, hosted by Coon Richards and Timothy Dot was a special guest on this and it was just focused on fishing in Irish waters and film What's it called? Hooked on Fishing? Hooked on Fishing Have you seen it? God No <laughs> Sounds like a, a comedy name for a fishing book He did some work for a TV show called Survival which is one of TV's longest running and most successful nature documentary series that I've never heard of. But it, it follows, so whatever the subject, it follows them throughout their whole life. Um, uh, so whichever creature it's following that, that series. And it will have guest commentators on each each uh, series or each show. Many actors have done it over the, over the years. Orson Welles, David Niven, uh, Sean Bean, Diana Rigg. I've picked them because they're Bond alumni. Um, and obviously, obviously Timothy Dalton. He did a six-part one for Anglia TV, and it was about uh, water and ducks. So that's 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 what he went for. Um, Jesus! But it was if you're listening in America, you'll you'll know it as Wildlife Chronicles. Will they know it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> and then in 1993, he did an episode of In the Wild, which is a PBS show in America and this one was in search of wolves so Dalton's quite hands on in this it's not not just a narration he's going and sort of observing and being around the wolves and I watched some of the clips and he's um, he's really fascinated by them you can you can see and I realised he also looks a little bit like a wolf doesn't he he's got wolf like features those piercing eyes has he got wolf like features yeah he has he has you look at him (laughs) He's when arguing the- <laughs> that Dalton's got wolf-like features. Yeah, wolf-like. <laughs> I can imagine him trying to do Hamlet with one of them. <laughs> but um, So that was broadcast, uh, yeah, July 1993 in the UK. And he said, I thought it would be interesting to show my reactions to what was happening, to let me become an active part of the journey, to filter the material through how I was feeling and what I was thinking. Great God, what fortune. There I sat freezing in that vast, empty, desolate, savage landscape surrounded by barren nothingness. And suddenly, they appeared. Come to check us out. They were very wary and very curious, and I'm sure they would have skedaddled had I have moved or gotten off my snowmobile. I'm sure they were more scared of me 
than I of them. They marked the territory to let us know who was boss and finally they moved away. And if you watch a couple of clips of this, he is fascinating and, and terrified and you can see it all. Yeah, it's it's crazy that he, he chose to go and actually be that close to them rather than... You could have just sat in an audio booth, couldn't he, and just done it, phoned it in. I like the idea that he started on ducks. He said, just put the ducks first <laughs> and then we'll move up. But they, they didn't say, right, we'll put you on geese next and, and swans straight to the wolves. This is why I love doing the podcast. I had no clue that Timothy Dalton made some wildlife documentaries. Yeah. Absolute yeah. madness. Mm-hmm. Wow. Sounds, the concept sounds amazing, though. I, I like the idea. They should do that nowadays, have different famous actors do, getting involved with the like doing the David Attenborough stuff. Yeah, they probably do. I don't watch enough nature documentaries to know if they do or don't. <laughs> well, they sometimes get like narrators like um, Morgan Freeman to do stuff, don't they? But they don't really get involved anymore. It's all just well. I think really Bear, Bear Grylls has got one where he gets a celebrity involved each each different week. That, that's him climbing mountains and stuff, not yeah, looking it's... at wildlife. He don't care. He kills the wildlife. Doesn't like them. He eats them raw. Just eats them raw. Anything. <laughs> He'll have anything. Ducks, wolves. Take what take we can get. But he did. He disclaimer. Did... I don't know what he eats. Um, but he did say about this there's virtually no privacy at all except of which you carve out for yourself and he talks about the documentary I was 800 kilometres that's 500 miles from the North Pole my little plane flew into this small Eskimo village that I was to stay in and all the Eskimos started saying James Bond come and eat some raw fish you're known everywhere that's remarkable the power of Bond well talking of Bond this is when the story starts getting interesting for the Bond fans that are listening who don't have a specific interest in historical dramas. Um, in spring 1986, he he suddenly became involved in the Bond discussions again and he went to, to meet with the uh, to, with Cubby Broccoli um, because obviously it looked like Roger Moore was uh, no longer playing Bond, which he wasn't, finally. And so he says about the meeting, he says, um, he didn't take it. He says, again, Mr. Broccoli very kindly said, was I interested? I couldn't. I was busy. I was doing two plays in the West End with Vanessa Redgrave, Anthony Compatra and The Taming of the Shrew. The schedules just clashed. So that was that. And I, I actually spoke to Butler about this earlier because I, I, it's quite hard to find the chrono- chronology of this kind of when all this happened and, and, and when all this cropped up. But this, this was before Brosnan was in the proper discussions for becoming Bond. So that was a very short, sharp discussion that he'd had with Cubby about about the role. But obviously, it comes back again later. Yeah, I've meant to investigate the timelines of this to figure out whether or not they spoke to him while Pierce was in the frame or not. But um, I won't go... Yeah, basically, we, we spoke a lot about Piers Brosnan getting the role for James Bond on the Piers Brosnan episode. So you can find out all about that Um here we want to speak about Timothy Dalton but interestingly uh, there was a point before he took the role that the News of the World reported that Dalton had actually been fired from 007 and Dalton actually sued the newspaper um, and he got the dam- he won and the damages uh, were paid to the National he paid them to the National Youth Theatre so just to, just to quickly recap then so Piers Brosnan was cast as James Bond for The Living Daylights um, and he uh, after Remington Steel had been cancelled. That show uh, had a pay-or-play deal with uh, Brosnan, which had 60 days, so they could either renew Remington Steel or after 60 days, Pierce Brosnan was free to do whatever he wanted. On the 60th day, Remington Steel 
the producers of that decided to make another series and Pierce got dragged in. He asked Cubby if they could wait for him, but they couldn't. They didn't want to have their James Bond appearing in a TV program where he plays a James Bond type character at the same time. So they said no. And this is a quote from Charles Jerry Giroux, a publicist at Eon. He said, I was with Pierce when he was told that he was no longer going to be Bond. I got the call from Cubby in Hollywood and I had to pass the phone to Pierce. It wasn't easy. He was just destroyed with reason. Wouldn't you be? So then it was back to the drawing board for Cubby and uh, Eon. And it was Dana, who's, Dana Broccoli who suggested that they go back to Dalton. Um, and they went and had drinks at the Dorchester Hotel. So yeah, the schedules had clashed previously, but at this point the schedule got delayed. So the film um, was able to proceed with Living Daylights with Timothy Dalton. He accepted the offer while he was waiting to fly from Take Concord. And he said uh, he was in the departure lounge waiting for his plane. He said, without anything to do, I decided thinking about whether I really, really should or should not do James Bond. Although obviously we'd moved somewhere along in that process, I just wasn't set on whether I should do or shouldn't do it. But the moment of truth was fast approaching as to whether I'd say yes or no, and that's where I said yes. I picked up the phone from Miami airport and I called them and said, yep, you're on, I'll do it. So there you go. On August the 6th, uh, 1986. Timothy Dalton uh, was announced to the press. He was not available to, to do a press conference because he was in Puerto Rico filming, I believe, on Brenda Starr. Yep. Um, yeah. And he apparently got £500,000 to play James Bond in The Living Daylights. Sean Connery was asked what he thought and he said, Tim Dalton is a very good choice. He's the right age, about 38, just like me. So obviously he's joking there. And then Dalton had been announced and the news then made it to Brosnan and he was interviewed by a London newspaper and it says it just wasn't meant to be. Certain things in life are meant to happen and this obviously wasn't one of them. There's a really interesting report in People magazine from this time, which I sent to, to these two and I'll, I might add it to the our Twitter thread when we release this episode, but they were very sniffy about Timothy Dalton being cast as James Bond. Uh, at this point, uh, they very much saw him as Vanessa Redgrave's boyfriend. And that was about it. And they said, this is a quote from uh, People magazine. It said, when people asked for an interview with Timothy Dalton, his studio representative insisted on a four page cover story like you gave Piers Brosnan. People magazine declined. So <laughs> that was quite interesting. And then when he was doing a, some press for Living Daylights, they asked if he was prepared to make more after Living Daylights. And Dalton said, there is a tide in the affairs of man and you have to take it at the flood. I'll give you one guess as what that's a quote from. Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah, he's quoting Shakespeare. It's from Julius Caesar. And it basically means, you know, you've got to take advantage of life when it's at its best, because if you don't take your advantage, take your opportunities at the high tide, you just may answer the question, Dalton. Yeah. yeah. Say that then. <laughs> yeah. You might just end up on the beach and never get washed out to shore, washed out to sea. So uh, there you go. So that's him taking the role of the living daylights. But before that, he had a film to make. Well, before he had a film to make, I got one. In, I found something quite interesting out about him. Um, apparently, when he was getting to the point of finally signing, it took a while from him accepting to him actually signing the deal through various things that happened. And um, apparently, one of the casting directors for The Living Daylights. Do you know who Robert Bathurst is? Yeah, he's, he's in. He's in Toast. He's in Toast. Yeah. He's in Cold Feet. He's in a load of other things. Yeah. He's, he's he's a great actor. He's he's a funny guy. 
Uh, he's really good in those things. But he um, apparently the casting director got him to audition for Bond whilst they were trying to get Dalton to sign this contract just to scare him. And Bathurst just says it was a ludicrous audition uh, and it was just an arm twisting exercise just to get him in to tr- trick Dalton into signing it because they wanted Dalton to think oh they're going to try and get this other guy in but yeah that was uh, just a nice little aside that uh, I thought was quite interesting just to get Dalton to sign on the dotted line from Cold Feet that's where, that's where I recognise him from yeah that's a funny story um, yeah so just a just a short uh, detour he, this is where he was announced as Bond he was on Brenda Starr filming that and it's about a guy who's an author of a comic strip, Brenda Starr. Brenda comes to life. She leaves the comic strip. Uh, and in order to keep his job, the author go, draws himself into the strip and pursues Brenda, who's going into the Amazon jungle to find a scientist, who is played by Timothy Dalton. And Dalton says, I play a man who has one eye and lives in the depth of the Amazon jungle, where he drinks the juice of black orchids to avoid going insane. I mean... Certainly, there's a curiosity to that. Interesting role for him to take. And he found out he was being Bond. So it's... And I think it was released after Living Daylights, it, wasn't it? Eventually, released in 1989, yeah. Yeah. I haven't heard of it. Yeah, I haven't either, no. Probably not going to watch it. Right, finally, Bond. He's, he's Bond. He's in Living Daylights. 1987, he starts... His he, he, filming starts and he's, the film gets released. But... When um, I've done quite a lot of listening, uh, what's the book that we uh, the really good book? Nobody does it better. Yeah, um, has got so many interesting insights into Living Daylights and all the different views people had and all the thoughts around the film when it came about. And um, I think one of the most interesting things about Living Daylights is um, it was never written for Dalton originally. It was um, as happens with a lot of Bonds. The, the first film isn't originally written for them. Um, Live and Let Die wasn't originally re- written for Roger Moore. Um, Golden obviously wasn't originally written for Brosnan and On Our Secret Service. So a lot of the best Bond films or the better Bond films, they're not written for the, the actor that's playing them because they don't know who it is while they're writing it until, until they get their actor in, which I think was quite interesting. John Glenn, it's quite a long quote, but I think it's quite a useful one. Um, John Glenn was talking about um, Dalton uh, in the role. He said, when we started writing it, we just didn't know who Bond was going to be. It had been decided Roger wasn't going to do it anymore, but at the same time, we weren't sure who it was going to be. Piers Brosnan was the most likely person at the time. We saw Pierce as being in the more tradition, not too heavy, slightly good-humoured entertainment, so we didn't really change our star dramatically on that film. It was written with Brosnan in mind. Dalton wasn't cast till within six weeks of shooting. We had to do quite a bit of rewriting. And then he said, uh, when Timothy Dalton came along, we had really had someone who had tremendous potential. Those possibilities really hadn't been open to us before to do a harder type of film. And The Living Daylights was a, a, tradi- a transitional film. And I think the key thing that is that when they started rewriting for Dalton, because obviously he's a very different actor than Roger, almost the antithesis of, of Roger as an actor, they removed a lot of the humour from the film. They removed a lot of the sort of the Bondian elements that people had been so used to for the past 15 years or so and John Cork friend of the podcast he he, he says something really interesting about Dalton in Living Daylights he said uh, Timothy Dalton brought 007 back to Fleming he understood the literary bond very well and having met Dalton on a couple of occasions he is an immensely charming man that charm does not follow him on screen in his two Bond films but it's not clear whether it's the acting choices of John uh, the acting choices of um, Dalton or John Glenn's directing but he becomes very angry in the films and that's at a time where 
Stallone and Schwarzenegger and people like that are just the whole world of action stars and everything like that is very very different from what Dalton is doing in that film so Dalton actually brings it back to reality he's he's going away from that sort of ridiculous superhuman action star and taking it back to this kind of normal human element um, which is a very big shift from what you get from obviously the Roger Moore ones <laughs> Roger, Roger was kind of superhuman but without being superhuman which is an interesting discussion in itself so you, and yeah, and he says there the reference here talks about how um, you believe that Bond doesn't even need a stunt double because he's such a real character that it's not like Schwarzenegger or Stallone. So I, I think that's a really nice overview of, of Dalton and where he sits in that thing. The um, the gross of the Living Daleks was 191 million, so it did a damn fine job. It did a good job. It wasn't it wasn't a stinker by any stretch of the imagination when it first came out, and it was the fourth most successful Bond film at the time of its release. Which, if you look historically, maybe not now. And and Butler, you just spoke about how he's had these, having a bit of renaissance, but certainly for the time after he did that, it wasn't regarded as a good Bond film. And Dalton was very very divisive as a Bond. Dalton talks about License to Kill. And he says he preferred The Living Daylights over License to Kill. Roger called the film a bloody good movie. IGN um, said uh, lauded the film for bringing back realism and espionage to the film series, and and for showing James Bond's darker side. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has given it seventy four percent approval rating um, and six point four out of ten. Then one thing before we have a little bit of discussion about it, I think I think is really interesting. I I was doing a race the other day and I was listening to the audio book of the uh, Nobody Does It Better. And they, they talk a bit about on that about a really big sticking point for a lot of people when it comes to Dalton, which is when he says Bond, James Bond at the start of the film. And it's such a big thing that people expect it to be this sort of deep element of gravitas in the film. And he just kind of flats it away. He doesn't really care about it. He just goes, Bond, James Bond. And he's not even really paying attention to what the woman's saying to him. Um, and this is a really good quote that I got from that book. It's very long as well, but it's really interesting. Um, it's from Dalton as well. So a lot of people said about that, that he didn't pay, he needed to be more like Bond in it. But his argument is, um, it wasn't a throwaway. I thought it was integral and a proper way to treat that line in the movie. It's not a line that stands outside from the movie. It's part of the scene. He's on the phone. He's got something to do. There are dead men littered about the mountainside. And he's trying to get through to headquarters. The girl interrupts him saying, who are you? So that's his name, but his main purpose is to get on with get with getting his message through. You don't suddenly stop acting, turn to face front and go, quote, Bond. If I'd stood outside the movie to do it, we'd have been back in another kind of film. My decision is to play it for the movie and the way that is right for the scene. So that's the so that we stay in that movie, which I think is really good. That pretty sums up Dalton's acting and his view on Bond. He wants he's anybody says, oh, you've got to do this for you know, the marketing to make it sound good. He's, it's not, it's the scene. It's all about the scene. Same with all of his acting and Shakespeare and all this sort of stuff. But yeah, sorry, I rambled on a bit there about I, Dalton. I, I mean, I mean, if that was the case, he would just say James or James Bond. Why is he, why, well, is, that's, he, why is he still saying that? Because somebody did say that. So, uh, one of the people who was saying that it was, he did it wrong was saying he should have just said James. Because mm. you're not showing off the fact that you're James Bond there. You're yeah. just saying, oh, James, I'm doing well, look, he's now. damned if he does, he's damned if he doesn't, isn't he? <laughs> yes. No, yeah. but I like the fact that he's actually really thought about it. It's not him being lazy. He's chosen to mm-hmm. do that, which I think yeah. is a nice approach. And it's probably, he's applying the same rules to Bond that he applies to, you know, Shakespeare yeah. and stuff like that. He's got to do it. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, thought a, of, he's thought about it and he's still got it wrong. So uh, Yeah, he's a thesp. But yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you're doing a Bond film, 
you probably do need to do that properly to keep people happy. But the Living what? Daylights, we'll do a full episode on that when we get to the letter T. So that's a long, long way off yet. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the, the Living Daylights will get its time in the sun um, when we get there. But you're right. It's totally quite different to License to Kill, I think. It does feel more like a more era film. It's got the a lot more capery type action. It's got the car on the ice. It's got the violin case. Uh, sorry, the violin. What sort of an instrument is it? I can't remember. The big giant. Cello. Cello. Cello, mate. Cello. Cello case. And it's got that sort of, yeah, it's got, yeah. it's got more sort of. You can see that it wasn't written for him. It wasn't written for his style of acting, but that could have happened with any Bond film. So you could have taken a more film and Dalton could have got involved and you'd write, rewrite it, but it would still have the elements in. You just shift the, 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 the way that, you know, the tone of it. And it just doesn't work very well. Yeah. Uh, just someone from Twitter from when I, when I asked earlier, someone said, called Andrew Gollan said, I love them, but his first one is still my favourite Bond movie. I love the opening scene, the car, and it's it's the last Bond movie to have that original European look and feel, which I can, yeah, I can sort of understand that. And then Steve Clamp said, it's a superb classic Bond, uh, Living Daylights. And Paul Wills said he prefers Dalton, Dalton's performance and look in The, the Living Daylights over License to Kill. But which, yeah, so, which is the one where he's got ridiculously high hair? I think he's got bigger hair in the first one, in, in The Living Daylights. Um, he's more, he's got, he looks great in the second one with this, this slick back hair. And I, I just love, I, I love License to Kill. Um, um in regards to Living Daylights, I know we are going to cover this, but I just think the reveal of him as Bond in the pre-title credits is great. It's fantastic, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of hinted, it's almost, it's, it's a bit like on a Majesty's Secret Service, isn't it? When when they're introducing mm. Lazenby and it's just, you see yeah. the hands and the cigarette and the bits and the bobs and like, yeah. it does a similar thing, doesn't it? So, yeah. Um, uh, it's on that's a Gibraltar one isn't it yeah but like yeah. Dalton's approach to Bond this is something that we always talk about or people will always suggest you know he is the one that took Bond back to the books and again like you said as an actor that's that's really his forte is doing the research he said usually if there's any research to be done I do it in this case one's very lucky there are books there there are the books of Ian Fleming I think they're terrific one is re-astonished by just how good a writer Fleming is, how crystal sharp details and how exciting he could be. And yeah, John Glenn was felt like it was good to have a fresh approach. He said he portrayed all the smoldering qualities that we were trying to introduce into the picture. And yeah, again, Dalton was sort of very obsessed with the books and bringing him to life. He said, "Make you've got to make Bond human. He's not a Superman. You can't identify with a Superman. You can always identify with the James Bond of the books. He's very much a man and a tarnished man, really. He's not perfect. I wanted to give him variety. I wanted to capture that occasional sense of vulnerability and the sense that you could be alive inside him but that there was something that was in there that you wanted to perceive that, that 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 kind of man must have. And I wanted to capture the spirit of Fleming. And that was a Before lot of time. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of what, um, it, a lot of the feedback we got about Dalton was, yeah, you know, it's the closest you get to, to, to the, to the bond in the books. And it, obviously that was something that would echo later down the line when we got Casino Royale and Daniel Craig, mm. is they really wanted to bring it back to the, back to the books. So yeah, it, it was um, successful, but as we've talked about before, the book of the Bond of the books is very different to the Bond of the films, and that's perhaps why his two films 
jar a little for some people um, compared to, you know, the capers of Roger Moore or even the capers. I just just think they weren't in sync. I just think what he's doing, the rest of the cast or the rest of the crew aren't doing. So he's trying to be really strict and treat this like he's a real spy and everyone else is trying to pull away from that in a lot of scenes. Mm. And it just, that's what jars me, I think. Whereas in Casino Royale, that doesn't happen because everyone's on the same wavelength. There's that. um, Sorry, go on. No, go on. I was going to say there's that there's that lady working undercover, isn't there, in the pipeline, and she seduces the the pipeline operative, and it's such a Roger Moore moment. Mm. Yeah, she's trying to seduce that guy, and when you transpose that with what Timothy Dalton's saying and 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 what it comes across as, that's where it jars. When we get to License to Kill, and we'll talk about it a bit more there, everything sort of syncs up more with what Dalton's trying to do. Yeah. And it becomes it's, a very different type of film. And I think that's the one where you see what could have been if, if, if there'd been more. Yeah. It's unfortunate because you could put, he could follow the other Bonds a lot easier than Roger Moore. That's the harshest one for him to follow, I think. Yeah. Because yeah, it's polar opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Really difficult. Even more so than Connery. He's, he's way more, he's far more serious than Connery, isn't he? Connery mm. could pull off a more film, but. Yeah, Dalton couldn't pull off more film. So, another movie, 1988. And um, this is about two uh, terminally ill patients in a London hospital. A British solicitor and an American football player. We've got no friends or family nearby. And they become friends and plot an escape to go to Amsterdam's biggest brothel for one last wild time. And it's based on a short story written by Barry Gibb. Yep, that Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees. What? <laughs> <I know. laughs> and the screenplay is was written by Roy Clark. Last of the Summer Wine, Open All Hours, and Keep Him Up Appearances. This is ticking every box for me. <laughs> wow. But I never thought we'd talk about Keep Him Up Appearances twice in one podcast. Or Barry Gibb. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, but he says it's probably the most enjoyable experience I've had making a film. Hawks is about two men who are facing a premature death since they have cancer and puts life into focus. It's provocative, a serious comedy, a black comedy. It deals with ordinary people who are going slightly crazy because of the situation they're in. It's somewhat life affirming, challenging, aggressive, and it says fight for your life, don't give in. Hawks. There you go. Hawks. You're going to watch it? I don't know where you watch. Where would you watch that? Is it on streaming yeah. or? I haven't looked, but well, yeah, you'd probably have to. It's quite hard to find a lot of these films. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that wraps up part one of uh, the Timothy Dalton special. Part two, we will look at License to Kill and his career beyond License to Kill, including not being able to come back for a third film. What those, what his third film might have been like. Um, there's a lot of information out there and his career right up to present day um, mm. we'll have a, a deep dive into all of that but yeah but how do people get in touch with us if they want to email us with corrections podcast at jamesbondazz.co.uk or they can find us on social facebook twitter or instagram at jamesbondazz fantastic well thank you so much for listening this has been our first part of our timothy dalton special and we will return to talk more about timmy d uh t dalton can we not make that a thing the daltonator timmy d D. yeah lord daltz tizzy dizzy respectable actor (laughs) t to the d
Yes, uh, next time uh, when the James Bond A to Z podcast will return. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.